listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Dr. Fred Brooks on the program today. Dr. Brooks, among many other achievements, managed the IBM 360 project. It was a $5 billion bet in the 1960s. It was the largest bet in the history of the world by a private company. And we're going to learn about that. And a full disclosure, too, Dr. Brooks was a friend of my grandfather, who was head of IBM at the time. Dr. Brooks is the winner of the National Medal of Technology. He's a Medal of the Turing Award. He wrote the book, The Mythical Man um, month. Uh, I get that. A mythical man month. He's a graduate of Duke University and has a PhD from Harvard in applied mathematics. So, Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for coming on the program today. The applied mathematics is a, it was a, a, a euphemism for computer science at the time. So, it was one of the five places in the country where you could study computer science when I graduated from college in '53. Really? Okay. I didn't realize that. Well, um, and I know you work with Dr. Aiken, too. I want to get into that as well. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, you were born in North Carolina, Dr. Brooks. Is that right? Yes. And then um, I heard you get... And grew, and grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, in the eastern part of the state. Greenville, North Carolina. Okay. Um, I heard a speech you gave um, in the computer field, and um, I understand you were influenced to go into computers by seeing a Time Magazine article by Dr. Howard Aiken and, and the Mark I computer. Is that right? Yeah, about about Aiken and the Harvard One Mark I computer, yes. the Aiken was the architect of the first American computer, and IBM built it to his kind of architecture. And I also, I heard you say that that was actually the second computer. The first computer was actually... Was it designed by Nazi Germany, Conrad Zeus, Z-U-S-E? Conrad Zeus, yes. I mean, I, until you, I heard you give a speech saying that, I had no idea that the Aiken was actually the uh, second computer. Could you tell me basically what the Aiken computer did, very simply, what what its basic... Well, it was a scientific calculator. It, it had... Uh, it, it was an interesting machine. It was about 60 feet long, and the, the memory consisted of rotating wheels... And the arithmetic was done by relays and clutches on the wheels. It operated at three operations a second, and but it was the first automatically programmable machine. You then the program could be of any length. <coughs> so the, it was used originally. It was designed for artillery calculations. It was also used for aerospace work and. When I went to graduate school, it was it was put in place in August of 1944. When I went to graduate school in 53, it was still chugging away at the Harvard Computation Laboratory, still being used for Air Force work. I see. Did, did IBM, did that computer help IBM, or was that just IBM just backed it to just advance the science of computers? They went into it for the purpose of 
advancing the science of computers, but in, in fact, uh, they are the engineers, Durfee, uh, Lake, and Hamilton, who, who used IBM components to build the machine, uh, became the most important computer engineers in, in the company, yes. Okay, and, and you work with Dr. Aiken, he supervised your, your PhD at Harvard? Yeah, he was my PhD advisor, yes. Was he the best computer guy in the country at that time, Dr. Aiken? Uh, well, there were differences of opinion, but uh, John von Neumann was the other real, real great at the time, and he was at Princeton. Okay, so it was... Uh, yeah, the other real great in the country, the uh, Morris Wilkes in Britain had built the first stored program, usable stored program computer. And uh, so there, there, were, there were a lot of really great pioneers around. Um, the person in the, gener the generation ahead of mine, yes. The person in England who you mentioned that computer, was that, was that built during World War II? Was that w with Turing that he did build that? or No. Turing built a machine, but his was much later and not nearly as useful as Wilkes. Uh, Sir, Sir Morris Wilkes was at Cambridge, and he <coughs> built, was in charge of their group of women running desk calculators to do scientific computing there. And he heard about the ideas that had been done at the University of Pennsylvania with stored program computers, and he had known radar technology during the war, so he decided, determined that they would build one in the, his, that laboratory at Cambridge, and they did. And so it was first put in operation in spring of 1945, and it, it was all electronic, no, no mechanical parts, yes. So that, that was... It was, store, it was a, the program was stored in the main memory, like as, as today. That was Sir Morris Wilkes. Yes. Um, the computer that Nazi Germany had, the Conrad Zeus, was that used for military purposes? Do you know why they built that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. Okay. Um, the IBM, You then worked on the, um, going to your days back to IBM, before the 360, you worked on the um, IBM 7950 Harvest computer. Is that right? Yes. And which, was an which was an attachment to the IBM Stretch supercomputer. Could you tell me about what the Har I understand it was used by the National Security Agency. Could you tell me what basically what the Harvest computer did, please? Well, it it, it was it was a character processing add-on to the scientific supercomputer, the, the uh, Stretch. Uh, and Stretch was a commercial machine. We built and sold nine of them for up to ten million dollars a piece. <laughs> Weather bureaus, atomic energy commissions, etc. But we built one of them for NSA, and it had this add-on, which uh, the stretch was 15 feet long. The harvest added another 20 feet of transistor circuitry, and it you, it was a character processing machine, and so it would compare characters with other characters. So, for example. If you, it was dealing with what were called wired wheel cryptographic machines like the German Enigma. It was working on the uh, essentially traffic from the Russian versions of wired wheel machines. And the characters, you can think of it as having two 
conveyor belts of characters going about four million bytes a second on each one. And then they would come to an arithmetic unit that might compare the two characters or add the two characters or subtract the two characters or put the characters together into a memory lookup and then take the result from whether it was from the arithmetic unit or whether it was from the memory lookup and put it on another conveyor belt going out. And so then at the far end where units that were stashing the stuff in memory as fast as the conveyor belts were producing them. So um, it, it was very different from any any other machine that's ever been built. And from a computer scientist point of view, a fascinating machine. It, did it hard? It ran, it ran for some 15 years at, at the NSA before it was retired. Really? And did it was super, super fast at sorting stuff. So yeah. Was that what it was for, Dr. Brooks? Was to sort information like from Russian sources or East Germany? Or? No, no. It was also doing these memory lookup operations and these arithmetic operations. So, for example, look, you have a, a, a stream of code coming. The code is changing at every letter. That's what, uh, what happens in a wired wheel machine, like the Enigma. The, the, the encryption substitution is changing every letter and so now you have you have a guess that maybe it the message says Heil Hitler or, or whatever the equivalent for Stalin was and so you try putting that just thinking of his testing that text against all possible encodings and so you run through the message changing the codings and changing the codings and changing the codings. And you keep track of what the odds are. And if uh, every time you send the character off to memory, you get back a little thing that says, here are the the odds that that's the right character. And you throw those into an accumulator, and when they add up to a million, you say, bang! The the, uh, odds that this is real are, are real encoding of the message are um, a million to one here. So now you hand that over to your human cryptographers to tr- try to figure out how, how to extend that in decoding to other parts of the message. And this this is called crib dragging, and it's a standard technique for working through character messages. And so this machine did that, as I say, at four million bytes a second, streaming along, streaming them along. Well, and just for people that don't remember, the Enigma machine was used by the Germans in World War II, and gradually the, the British cracked the Enigma, and it helped, obviously, to read the German messages during the war. Um, That's right. You reference Enigma. Oh, could, could I just talk about um, your work on the, on the 360? Um, just in, in very simple terms, could you please explain what the, what the IBM 360 did and why it was important? Well, the, the basic problem IBM faced commercially was it had six product lines, many of which competed with each other. And each of them had grown to the, memory got cheaper and cheaper, and memory is very valuable in any computing operation. And so each of them had made new models of their vacuum tube in each, both the scientific product lines and in the commercial product lines. They had 
done generation after generation with more and more memory. But at some point, you run out of address capability because you, your instruction format is only able to address so much. And then you have to do what is called a change in the architecture, that is the instruction formats and the addressing to uh, get what you want. So the product lines were running out of steam and they were competing with each other. So I think it was Don Spaulding, who was staff advisor to Finn Learson, who said, we need a company-wide new product line. And, and so a group of us were sent off to a motel in Connecticut for six weeks to hammer out what kind of product line that ought to be and could it be done. And so we came back with a, what is called the spread report. It's in the annals of computers. And uh, said, yes, it can be done. And moreover, we think it's possible. We don't know that it's possible to make a product line from the smallest machines to the largest machines the company makes, which will run exactly the same programs for at all sizes. So different. Up, upward and downward compatible. So different customers with different size businesses could use the same machine, Dr. Brooks. Is that roughly right? Not, not, not only that, but a, a, if you had outgrown your machine, you could bring in another one over a weekend and plug it in, and it would continue to work. And what you had, didn't, have to change, and, didn't have to change the software at all. Or if your business had shrunk and you decided you needed a smaller one, you could do that. And that was absolutely new. Nobody had ever attempted that before. It's downward compatibility. <clears throat> so the programs that ran on the bigger machine would run on the smaller one as long as there was enough memory. And before the 360, what would a business do if they wanted to add, just get a whole new computer system? or? Um... Well, yes, or, or if, if they stayed within the same product line, they could go up and usually get compatibility going up. That's easier than okay. going down. But being able to do it, well, for example, going down has the advantage that you may want to replace one system with two smaller ones and then have each of them grow separately. And, for example, in different locations. So instead of a centralized location, oh, you, and so we, we achieved that. that. That was a technical challenge for the architects. Could you tell me, please, I mean, I, I want to go through some of the problems that you had, Dr. Brooks, but could you first tell me, please, what, what the so-called Brooks Law is that you found out about adding people to a software project and what happens? Well, that, that was later on the software part of the project rather than the hardware part. What, what happens is the communication costs increase and the people who were making progress on the project have to stop doing that to teach the new people what's going on. And so, in, in general, there are several different effects that make it go slower rather than faster after you first add people. So, my, my, you know, it's really a very overgeneralized statement, but I think it is proven to be true in most cases that adding people to a late project makes it later. Right, right. And you had, you well, look, many hands make light work. Some always, right? Right. 
No, many hands make light work. Sometimes. <laughs> okay. Many hands make more work, always, because they have to be taught, they have to be recruited, they have, and the work has to be divided in a different way. And with software work, that means you have to define new interfaces between more parts than you had before. And so there's more work always, and in the case of software, the more work makes more difference than the many hands do. And Dr. Brooks, you had 9,000 people on this project at one point, right? Places like Sweden and different parts of the no, U.S.? No, 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 no. Uh, the, comp the company had thousands of people working on the manufacturing. The, uh, the engineering team in, in the different countries well, the software got up to a thousand. The hardware, I don't think, got up to a thousand at one time. But the soft, the software part of it got up to a thousand people at one time. And and yes, they they went lots of countries. I think we went six countries. How did you coordinate all the different people in all the different countries, sending you bits of software? Did you just have to look over all these different, all the different work of the different? Well. I mean, I, I had a great team of managers in each of these locations. Now, keeping up with the communication is hard. For, so <clears throat> the first of the 360 machines was designed in Britain. The, uh, the architecture was done centrally, but the implementation of it was, the first one was done in Britain, and it was going to be manufactured in Poughkeepsie. So we rented the first 24-7 telephone line across the Atlantic that IBM ever had was so we could talk to the folks in England in, the, in our common daytimes and send data to the factory at night. I so that was part of it. Well, part of it is you just have to get on the plane and visit. There's no substitute for FaceTime. Just, um, and we, yes, sorry. We had computers being built in England and Germany and three and two places in the U.S., and we had communications being built in France, and we had check, bank check machines being built in Holland, and we had factory data machines being built in Sweden, uh, and then we had software being done in Germany and California, and discs were being done in California, and tapes were being done in Colorado and printers were being done in Kentucky. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a company-wide project, and so it took a whole lot of communication. Were there any engineers in Europe that were better than others? Like, were the Germans more thorough than the Swedish, or did everyone pretty much have different strengths and weaknesses and as far as the, the different countries you dealt with and the engineers there? Well, there were, there were different strengths and weaknesses. The... Uh, the Germans were, uh, I, I would say, yes, more thorough and slower. The British were had a better team of engineers than any of our American laboratories did, in my opinion. That was my personal opinion, that their, their hardware engineers that on the IBM team were sharper than, the, than in most of the other IBM teams. Uh, so each culture brings its own strength, yeah. Um, 
You mentioned that um, in the IBM 360, it was important to you to go from a 6-bit byte to an 8-bit byte, and that enabled the use yeah. of, of lowercase uh, letters. Could you please explain why that was important? No, just look at your computer you use every day. Okay. What do you use it for? Well, typing and the, writing a paper. The lowercase, the lowercase matter, characters matter. So, so that was just um, to facilitate that. That's why that was important to go from a 6-bit to an 8-byte. Well, yeah, you see, until then, all the computers had only uppercase and numerals. I see. All computers made by everybody. Okay. And all the IBM computers did, too. Well, by changing the 360 to 8, we kind of forced the whole industry to go to 8-bit bytes. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. That, that was the way the computers were before that. I, I didn't know that. Um, well, even if we if you go back and think about telegraph, they, they had five-bit bytes. They had to use a shift key to get between numerals and, and, and capital letters. <coughs> the computers had gone to six-bit bytes, so they could encode both the 36 alphabetic characters plus the 10 digits plus some punctuation. I see. Uh, um, the final question on, on the 360, Dr. Brooks, is, um, and maybe it's answered by the lowercase lettering that we discussed, but, but could you just summarize, please, how that accelerated the use of the computer? How would, how would the world have been different if we didn't have the 360? Would, would things have just been delayed five or ten years? Do you have any guess on what would have happened? Well, there were several computer manufacturers making computers, and some were being very successful, and IBM was being very successful. So the the Model 1401, which was a, a little transistorized machine, the, the 360s were the first integrated, and they were even semi-integrated circuits. But they were IBM's and everybody else's. Not everybody else. Bell Labs had an experimental integrated circuit machine earlier. <coughs> Not a commercial machine. But... Uh, IBM led the way in the integrated circuits, which made things smaller and cheaper, made possible, for example, the personal computers and even the office computers. So it, it's fair to say it accelerated the computer revolution. Is that fair to say? Oh, mercy, yes. Okay. So and now, after the 360, that you then go to University of North Carolina and you help to set up, you, well, you do set up their, their computer program. Is that right? Yes. And you've been there pretty much um, ever since, right? I mean, was that I, one of the first? I, I, I did. I fifty. I did fifty-two years teaching there. I was chair of the department for the first twenty years, and then I just have been involved as a as a teacher until when I turned eighty-four. I decided it was time to retire. And was that one of the first computer um, programs at a university in the country? Was that was that an early? I imagine it's uh, okay. Okay, let's let's be a little precise here. As I say, when I finished college in '53, there were five places in the country you could go to study computers, and two places in England. But either they went math departments or they went electrical engineering departments. There were no computer departments as such. We were racing to become the first freestanding computer science department. Purdue beat us by six months. And so, in fact, Purdue was the first and we were the second in in the U.S., yes. Okay, great. Could I just ask you just to um, 
think about the future, Dr. Brooks? I mean, when you look at um, artificial intelligence, a lot of people worry that computers are going to out, you know, outsmart mankind and, and, and someday destroy us and they have the dystopian fears of what the future is. Are you concerned at all when you look at the future, you look at AI and what might, might occur? Does that concern you at all? I'm, I'm concerned that, as it has been true with computers, they can be used and they can be misused. But I'm I'm not concerned that the AI is going to outsmart mankind. No, I think the Lord has given us an incredibly, incredibly flexible minds. And uh, AI is good for all kinds of things, but it depends on vast amounts of data. And so does human beings. I mean, we store stuff all our lives and draw on it in ways we don't even know about. And so uh, I'm not concerned that the machines are going to so outsmart human beings as to take control. Okay. But I am concerned that evil, sinful human beings are going to misuse computers and AI to take control of each other. Yeah. When you look at you look at um, the state of the computer companies today, obviously there are huge companies like Google and Facebook, and there's concerns about privacy and that these companies had too much power. Um, and and, and IBM is a much smaller company, of course, today than it was 50 years ago. But um, in terms of size of the, in the computer industry, are you concerned that that we are giving up too much of our privacy to these big American companies? Is that a is that a valid concern? Yes, I think I think the privacy concerns are completely valid. I think the way Facebook has accidentally leaked data uh, indicates they don't have control. And so I think the security and privacy concerns are are real and need a great deal of attention. And computer science departments all over the world have people who are concerned with computer security and working on researching ideas for that every day. Now we need decisions to put them into place. All right. Um, just a final question. You mentioned you touched on religion earlier. Have you always been um, a religious, Doctor Brooks, a religious Christian? Uh, I, I, I was grew up a churchman, but not really a believing Christian. I became a believing Christian at about age thirty, <laughs> while working at IBM. As a matter of fact, through through the influence of an IBM colleague, one of the world's great computer architects, Jerry Blau. Is there any, um, I mean, in, do you see any contradiction or any being a, being a person of science who looks for, you know, binary uh, and, and, and questions that can be answered and religion, which is based on, to a degree, faith? I mean, is there any contrast in that of being a scientist and someone who also has is a man of great faith, in your opinion? No, I don't, I don't see a contradiction. I'm, uh, I believe the scriptures to be true and what they teach is the nature of God and how we are to behave. And I don't believe they intend to be historical on scientific matters. I'm a, I follow <coughs> Dr. Collins, the geneticist, and, and that I'm a theistic evolutionist. Okay. But, yeah, so I, I don't have a contradiction there. One final question, Dr. Brooks, as we sit here today, and as someone who's seen the industry um, advance, Pardon. certainly advance a lot, are you... <coughs> Are you optimistic about the future? I mean, in general, with with technology that that in general will serve the good of mankind, or is it? Or are we at a yes? You are optimistic. You think it is going to be in general good for us as we adapt yes, more. Yes, I, I, I do indeed. 
Okay, great. Well, D Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for making time to speak with me today. I very much appreciate your time, and, um, and thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. I will, Dr. Brooks. Thank you. Bye-bye.